1: We're just under two months away from the state election and transport infrastructure is once again proving a key issue. Last week, the government unveiled its business case and design for a future Melbourne airport station while also committing to remove more level crossings on the upfield line. The opposition, meanwhile, is challenging the Suburban Rail Project and calling for a redirection of funds into the state's health system to help us make sense of this. I'm joined by a regular spokesperson on all things urban planning on this show, Associate Professor Dave Nichols from the University of Melbourne. Welcome. Dylan, good to see you. Good to see you too. Nice jumper. I know I commented on it before, but it is yeah. a particularly fetching jumper. Thank you. Um, I'm
2: fond of it, yes. <laughs> I saw the, the chair of my... Um, of the planning stream, saw me in the supermarket and he went straight to the jumper, very critical. Critical <laughs> very of the jumper? Critical, yes.
1: That's a bit nasty. I know, I thought so.
2: <laughs> it's up before arbitration now, we're going to have to settle it. I think I'm, I'm going to get him sacked. Yeah, yeah. good idea. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, initial impressions of the airport station that was unveiled last week?
2: Um, look, it's it's another one of those. Did you? I don't know about you, um, I used to, there was a, I can't remember his name, there was a science fiction um Painter did these amazing science fiction, um, you know, re- very realistic, you know, all on other planets and uh, amazing space stations and stuff. Oh, God, I can't remember his name. Anyway, um, I sort of felt that it was in the, in the realms of the, you know, uh, uh, imaginable but, but highly unlikely. <laughs> uh, and, and it's, you know, but I guess these things are produced um, partly to elicit a, a reaction and you can't expect it to end up looking like that really
1: i'd kind of love there to be a comparison of these space age designs to how it actually looks when it's built yeah exactly you know, yeah, yeah yeah but there was some commentary from you know melbourne airport preferred a station underground arguing mm. that that would in some way give more flexibility for um you know potentially renovating the station into the future but do you have any particular perspective on on the station itself what it should be doing and 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 so on
2: i mean i uh, i'm I'm somewhat ambivalent about the uh, airport rail anyway. I sort of feel like there's a little bit of... Everyone's going, well, you know, other cities have them. You know, Sydney's got one. Uh, why don't we have one? And I I admit that, you know, on paper, that our method of getting to and from the airport looks a little bit shocking. Oh, well, that Skybus, you know, but the Skybus is actually really good. Um, but, you know, I personally, I'll, I'll take it. You know, I think it's, I think it's a really... Um, uh, perfectly serviceable way of getting to and from the airport considering you know I know this is a kind of and we'll talk about this more I hope um, but it is a kind of you know which comes first it's a chicken and egg kind of thing and mm. in, in that like most people drive to the airport anyway but you know okay so maybe there's a way of, of stopping them doing that and maybe um, uh, the, the idea of a train is is the way but um, you know I am I do feel that there's considering you know your, your green case for for a train to the airport, uh, is is the case for we need to save, uh, you know, we need to be less polluting as we go to the airport to take a plane, which is one of the most polluting things we can possibly do. So, you know, it, it does have that slight... There's a little bit of elitism, uh, you know, kind of uh, in that... Um, ..looking... In, in, the, in the ways of looking at that. But uh, essentially, I think, yes, probably, it could probably best be an underground... Um, train station why not they you know keep these things um you know nicely out of the way i have really no idea where they're planning to put it uh, or where they could possibly put it but you know i don't think it really
1: matters yeah well i mean we're getting it sooner than it had been slated for mm. we, we'd been told it was going to be you know decades away it always mm. seemed far off into the future but the business case that was released last week suggests that it could be ready by 2029 and connect up to the Melbourne Metro as well. And I suppose that the bigger conversation is what some of these projects open up. Um, and there was some reporting, I think, in The Age around the community in and around East Keelore who've been calling for a station for a long time, and that was eventually included in this design. So do you see sort of a benefit to saying yes to these projects and giving certain suburbs that have traditionally been quite uh, isolated in a tra- public transport sense more access to the CBD and, and potentially surrounding suburbs as well.
2: Yeah, totally. And I think these things are, you know, that, even that kind of thing, even that station, that Keylor station, uh, is a real game-changer in terms of the way that those places are perceived and, and the kind of, uh, you know, not just the lifestyles of the people in those places who obviously um, need that kind of thing. Uh, it's also a, a question of... Um, uh, you know uh, property values and the, and the kind of um, uh, you know value that's that's put on financial value, economic value that's put on those kinds of places. Before we go any further, Dylan, I, we talked about this yesterday, and I, I just want to say it mm. now um, that I said to you yesterday. By the way, I'm a, I'm a member of the Labor Party. I mean, I don't have anything to do with the you know decisions made or anything like that. But yep. that, uh, you know, I'd, and um, one of my sisters works for Jacinta Allen. so. Just worth disclosing, yeah. Yep. So I, but that's why I kind of I like to to take this back, you know, away from the specifics a little bit. Anyway. Absolutely, you know, I think that those, um, which is why the thing, you know, you mentioned the that that new station, which I think is a, a terrific idea, and you know, the the age puts that case that these people have wanted, you know, not these people anymore. You know, generations of people in that area have uh, have wanted a station there for um, for a long, long time, and that. Area of Melbourne has been underserviced by fixed rail transport forever, and, and I'm sure it's incredibly grueling for them, galling for them that um, they have a, uh, a goods line running through there. So they have a railway line sitting there; it's not electrified it's not a passenger service, um, or it's a, it's the train to um, from Melbourne to Sydney, I think actually. Mm. So you know, it's it's this railway line that's like plain right, right there in plain sight, and um, and they can't use it for anything, but. Um, so that's been um, you know that's been there for a hundred years, not not doing anything for local people. Uh, so there's so there's all of that, but I think that um, more broadly, these big rail projects are you know huge game changers for cities. And I think that you know in in our case in Melbourne, um, you know yes, there's been um, the Auditor General has put put out this report saying um, that the the state government didn't follow normal protocols in. Um, in making decisions, um, you know, it didn't follow its own rules in making decisions here with these uh, these particular projects. Um, I mean, I sort of feel that that may be so. And I think that's an issue on, you know, put that on, on one side. I mean, there, there's also the, you know, the the airport thing, the airport rail is, that's an issue as well. And uh, that's where I think the people of Melbourne are kind of making their feelings known mm. about, about uh, a... Um, a, rail, a railway to the airport, and that's you know entirely uh, legitimate um, and meaningful. And governments need to take notice of what people want, but um, but also I, I feel that a a business case for something that is, you know, such an amazing game changer that this this big loop line will be an incredible... You know, it's going to turn Melbourne from, um, you know, uh, Melbourne's railways from the octopus model to the spiderweb model.
1: The suburban rail loop you're you're talking about? Yes, yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: Which is just going to be an extraordinary, um, you know, Melbourne will be completely different Melbourne will be completely different in 30 or 40 years anyway in in all kinds of ways. But this is, um, you know, a new way of conceptualising Melbourne. And people have um, complained, I think justifiably, that whereas Sydney... Has um, made a a scenario for itself, and it's had to because Sydney is is quite a um, geographically quite a different place to to say Melbourne or to most cities because it's you know it hugs the coast in the way that it does. Um, that Sydney has um, has got a couple of um, well, it's got it's got another. Um, satellite and it's got a few satellites within it, so to speak. Uh, You know, it has um, Parramatta, obviously, and it has some other, you know, places like um, Bankstown and so on that are, um, you know, out there in the, um, you know, far away from the CBD, but um, function as kind of, you know, secondary CBDs. Melbourne doesn't have anything like Mm. that, really. You know, the closest we get is things like, um, I guess, you know, off the top of my head, Box Hill or, or whatever. Um, and they and they don't really function that way. And there's a there's a a move at the moment to set Werribee up in that in that way and make Werribee the focus of you know growth and turn Werribee into a kind of a second CBD, which I think is actually a really great idea. If we're going to have to expand, if we're going to expand the city, it's a great thing to do. Um, by the way, the 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 loop, the suburban loop, you know, will service that as well and also um, provide a line from werribee to the airport. So, and that's you know, that's
1: the third stage I think, I that, think that's it is. Yeah, the, yeah the last one to be built if it yeah, goes ahead right.
2: if it goes ahead that's right. Yeah. Um I mean obviously there's going to be a long it's a long time you know will it be in our lifetime still I don't know um that you know that the final stage will actually be open but um in any case it's it's it gives melbourne there's an opportunity for melbourne to develop some new um, you know, focal points that aren't just the CBD. And I think the CBD, I mean, you know, has problem, problems of its own, by the way, but the, the CBD, um, you know, all roads should not lead to the CBD mm. um, and particularly not all all railway lines, you know. And it's uh, it's time that we, you know, if we're going to be a city of six or seven million, which, you know, there's, there's a whole other argument about whether that's a good idea or not. I really don't think it is. But, you know, if that's going to happen, and it looks like it is, then at very least... Um, we, we need to get off this kind of, you know, um, village green kind of sense of uh, we all have to go to the CBD anytime anything happens. Yeah. We have to be down, uh, you know, down in, in Swanson Street for it. It's, mm. um, it's not tenable.
1: Yeah. Speaking with Associate Professor Dave Nichols from the University of Melbourne, who joins us roughly monthly on the show, talking about transport infrastructure um, kind of policies and issues around that in the lead-up to the state election, which was just around about two months away. And, um, and I mean, speaking of... You mentioned some of the detractors of the way that the state government, I suppose, has gone about uh, proposing some of these big mega-projects with, you know, infrastructure. Victoria Infrastructure Australia not necessarily, um, you know, sort of agreeing to the business case that the government has put out there and those uh, criticisms from the Auditor-General... As well. But I mean, broadly speaking, um, and I'm not going to sort of read the tea leaves about what's going to happen in the election, but people seem broadly supportive of the agenda that the government has put out there. And I wonder if sort of thinking about transport infrastructure projects and public transport. In particular, I mean, often they do have a very long lead time. We mentioned the airport rail and it always seemed to be such a distant, way-off project that would never really come to fruition. And then there's these um, kind of promises around things like the Doncaster Rail, which has never really happened mm. as well. So do you feel that there is this sort of strong public sentiment that, you know, we really need better public transport soon and that when people see a government seriously considering that, they generally might be on board, even though there are often those issues around what might need to be destroyed to make way for, for rail in terms of parks and the kind of NIMBY factor as well, where, you know, your house might be right next to where mm. a skyrail was built, for instance.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, I don't think it I personally don't think it's the NIMBY factor as well. I think it's all NIMBY. Mm. Um, you know, I think there's this is this is part of the, you know, the planners travails is that um you know people have to understand or accept or be made to accept or be persuaded to accept that um sometimes you got to you know take take one for the team uh so um you know it's never pleasant but it's uh it's sometimes necessary uh you know and a lot of the time NIMBYs are just saying well why don't you why don't you go and hassle those people down the road and make things bad for them instead you know it's really um no, no win as far as governments are concerned. But the, uh, yeah, I think people are absolutely on board with public transport. I think that uh, it's, you know, for, for whatever reason, not, I don't know what the percentage is these days of people who actually take public transport. Uh, you know, it's always been ridiculously low for like 60 or 70 years. It's been, you know, most people don't, I think. Um, that may not be the case. I don't have those figures to hand. Um, probably with, with public transport um, often being the the really the most convenient way to get to big uh, events. That's that's probably you know people do end up taking the you know even though you you can spot a marmalade on the train they're the people looking around at the the walls and the and the ceiling and <laughs> not going, looking oh, at don't their don't phones <laughs> no, and sort of go oh, oh it's, it's a train oh I'm on a train, um, but uh, yeah I think that um, the people are you know it's really hard when you when you start to when you propose something I imagine that as far as the current government is concerned, um, if they have a strategy, you know, a 50 year strategy, you know, they're probably saying something like, well, we're, we're probably going to be in office for, a, you know, almost certainly another four years. Um, you know, unless there's some, something terrible happens, um, probably eight, we can really get things, you know, mm-hmm. uh, started with this, things like this loop, um, Really get the get the airport thing, yes, totally that's totally within our um, purview um, get the loop thing like so far advanced that wh- whoever comes next, it would be crazy for them to abandon it in the way that the uh, the liberals are currently crazily saying they're going to abandon or postpone it for um, um you know as though we can only afford health transport or health uh, yeah jeez, but um the so th- so I think that they they probably think they're on a winner with this one and, um, you know, but it is really as, a, sorry, as, I was, as I was saying, it's really hard to get to think about what it's going to be like in 20 or 30 years and also it's really hard, it is hard and, and I commend anybody who can do it to um, get people thinking, well, you might not be around, you know, in 20 or 30 years, maybe you have children um, who might benefit from this? Um, you know, I suppose it's a little bit like the climate change argument as well, as you know, and, and that does work for um, for a lot of people. You know, the the legacy that they're leaving to their um, their offspring and their you know um, and thereafter. But it's um, so it's it's tough. And I you know I know I've said this on this program before, and I think it's a really interesting conundrum that we have in this country. We have a pretty effective set of de- you know, democratic systems at the various tiers of government—they're actually they're actually pretty good in lots of ways. But because, particularly because we have um, compulsory voting, you've really got to get everybody—you know—at least, you know, um, thinking about this stuff uh, and having having an opinion. Uh, and you have you don't have much—you know—they've you, got to have an opinion on it every you know, in this state every four years. They've got to, you know, reassess in four years' time. Well, I mean, I don't actually think that's a bad thing, but you mm. can understand why, you know, that's that's the way the governments have to think about it yeah. in this in this state. And that's, um, that makes Australia in many ways really interesting place for um, things like really big projects. I mean, until the um, uh, Kennett years, you know, we had a, a planning body that was the planning body that didn't need to worry too much about, what um, the average voter thought, and and it's much more a case uh, in the twenty first um, century that that state governments you know take these things on, take them to the people. I mean, there's there's an argument for both ways. That's
1: right. Consistency is good, but you also don't want necessarily projects shelved midway through at the you know huge cost yes. as well, which goes to responsible government yes. and properly listening to these independent bodies, you know, where, where you should.
0: Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts, and via the app.
1: The new ad to build support for the Uluru Statement has been launched as the Albanese government uh, continues to work towards a referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. The ad is part of a campaign called History is Calling, which is led by the architects of the Uluru Statement designed to encourage Australians to vote in favour of establishing an official mechanism that would give First Nations representatives a say in laws that affect them. To tell us more, I'm joined by co-chair of the Uluru Youth Dialogue, Wiradjuri and Pacifica Fijian woman Bridget Karma. Welcome, Bridget. It's great to have you on the show.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: And so there's, of course, a lot of work going into the referendum, a lot of consultations happening at the moment. I wonder if you can tell us how this ad fits into that broader campaign.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the Uluru Dialogue does a lot of work around education and encouraging conversations around what the Uluru Statement is, and obviously at the moment, particularly around what the First Nations' voice is. Um, so, as you said, the Uluru Dialogue have released our ad as part of our grassroots voice referendum campaign, History is Calling. And we hope that, It's the next step in that uh, education piece um, and encourages uh, Australians to have those conversations around the voice and also to remind Australians that this is a big moment in our national history and everyone has a role to play in making the voice a reality
1: yeah and I mean that idea of making history very much comes through in the ad which goes for for around a minute or so it really highlights how that there's an opportunity here I wonder if you can speak to that message and, and exactly sort of I don't know who you had in mind that might need some convincing to get on board and have those kinds of conversations
3: yeah well I mean it's all Australians every 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 person in this nation I guess has some kind of part to play in in this moment in history. Um, Really, it's about encouraging Australians to understand what the voice is and and take some initiative around, I guess, understanding that or just having conversations with other people, whether it be family, friends, or um, actually jumping on, you know, a website and having a look at that to find out what it is. Um, But the story uh, that, I guess, sits in the ad... It really talks about what a future might be if we did support the voice and if we had a successful referendum on the voice. So it sends a message of hope of what the future could look like but also makes it very clear that as a nation we do have a long way to go before it comes becomes a reality and we need the support of the Australian to peop- people to get this done. Um, but we believe as the Uluru Dialogues that together we can get this done um, in the next term of government.
1: And we've heard uh, just this morning that uh, through a survey, a clear majority of Australians, uh, 64%, um, appear to be in favour of the draft wording announced by Anthony Albanese at the Gama Festival back in July. Oh, yeah. And just to remind listeners that the wording was, uh, do you support an alteration to the constitution that establishes an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice? So it's it's not necessarily that um, 64% are necessarily going to vote yes, but they support the wording that was announced by Albanese then. Does that give you hope that you're kind of, I suppose, on the right path to building support um, for a yes vote?
3: Absolutely. I mean, this, you know, there's been a lot of work done over the last five years since the issuing of the statement and even more work done before that on constitutional recognition of First Nations peoples in this country, you know, over a decade's worth of work. Um, so it's it's really great to have those statistics to show that there is a majority support for the wording of the amendment announced by Anthony Albanese um, and we're just continuing that momentum as the Uluru Dialogues, to continue those conversations, continue the edu- campaign, education campaign. And that's really, you know, a part of what this ad is about, is to continue that education and reaching out to Australians um, towards getting that support even higher.
1: I wonder if you can take us inside the Uluru Youth Network and the Uluru, Uluru Youth Dialogue. What kind of work do you typically do and what kinds of conversations do you have with people around the country?
3: Yeah, so the Uluru Youth Dialogue is a national network of First Nations, young people aged 30 years and under. Um, And we started in 2009 after my my co-chair and I, Alira Davis, Saw that there was still room in the Uluru dialogues for youth to have a particular voice in the grassroots movement, um, and so we app- approached senior leadership with the idea of um, actually starting a youth dialogue and continuing on the work of the uh, youth delegates to the dialogues over 2016 and 17 and the Uluru Convention, and. A lot of the work that we do is getting out into communities on the ground and running activations. So, you know, they might be really small activations where there's only a crowd of, you know, 20, 30 people, right up, until, right, right up to, like, thousands of people. So um, we usually run stalls and we have our uh, Uluru Dialogue merchandise um, and we also have, like, all, all our information and we just have yarns with people, everyday Australians, about... The statement from the heart and the voice and why we're asking for a constitutionally enshrined voice. Um, and usually we have um, really, really great engagement with young people at those activations. Young people come up to us and want to have a conversation and want to learn and listen. And I think we, you know, through those activations, we, we have meaningful conversations with people um, and people go away knowing a lot more about the voice and what we're calling for. Um, and we hope that those activations play a part in, um, you know, Australians being the most informed that they can be when it's time to go to referendums. So we'll keep doing those, that work, um, whether it be at a small community um, festival or whether it be at a large conference. That's the kind of work that our young people do as well as, um, you know, sitting on panels and um, being really engaged in the discussion and giving perspectives from a young person's point of view um, in this country.
1: And how does that work with the broader um, Uluru dialogue process? Because in, uh, you know, of course, many First Nations communities, there's a great deal of respect uh, for elders and and elders sort of look to to sort of, you know, guide um, uh, processes such as this one. How do sort of young people see their role within the broader conversations, I suppose, that are happening towards a referendum on constitutional change?
3: Yeah, you've you've picked up a really important aspect of the way that the Uluru Youth Dialogue works. So we actually sit underneath the Senior um, Uluru Dialogue, which is co-chaired by Aunty Pat Anderson and Professor Megan Davis. And so all of our work is directed, I guess, by the strategy that's put forward by the senior leadership. Um, But we obviously, you know, have different ideas and different lived experiences as young people. So basically, if we have an idea, we go to our senior leadership and say, um, you know, what do you think of this idea? Um, There's this awesome opportunity, this community event. Could we go out and talk to people at that? And we're always led by our elders. So um, it's, you know, we're really grateful as young people. We stand on their shoulders. Um, you know, our senior leadership as well as our ancestors that have come before us, we have opportunities now because they've done the really, really hard work and put structures in place that allow us to have the privilege and opportunity to take this next step towards the referendum on the voice. Um, But all the work that we do is guided by our senior Luru dialogue leadership Um, and we're so grateful for their mentorship and their wisdom that they impart on us as well.
1: Speaking with Bridget Karma, co-chair of the Uluru Youth Dialogue, all about a new education campaign out called, what's well, called History is Calling is the broader campaign, but there's a new ad um, that's just sort of doing the rounds as of this week, um, designed to build momentum and build support for um, for an Indigenous voice to parliament. And I mean, you mentioned some of the, the grassroots sort of activism and, and, um, and efforts that you're part of in various communities around the country. It's inevitable with a process such as this one that there's going to be differences of opinion and we've of course heard some differences of opinion about the merits of Indigenous voice to Parliament and the right kind of model and priority of things like a voice um, compared to a treaty process initially and the Greens and, and Lydia Thorpe have been um, sort of you know, vocal in their perspective being a little bit different mm. to what's been presented um, so far as part of the Uluru statement but, but how do you go um, kind of having conversations where there are are differences of opinion and providing a forum where um, those misgivings or or questions people might have about the ideal process can be aired and and people's voices properly heard?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to, you know, accept that not everybody's going to have the same opinion and that includes First Nations peoples. Um, You know, statistics show that over 80... 4% of First Nations peoples believe we should have a representative body um, and that it should be protected in the Constitution, which I think is a great, great number to have. Um, And it's, you know, the Uluru dialogue process that happened in 2016 and 17 was well thought out by the First Nations members of the Referendum Council and they took a, a fair amount of time to develop that to ensure that it was Uh, led by a community, so the First Nations members of the Referendum Council worked with local uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander authority bodies, and those that participated in those processes were determined by their regional and local communities, Um, and it's that process that happened. Um, I guess, that allows the cultural authority in the Uluru Statement. Of course, everyone has their right to have a different opinion um, and we absolutely respect that. And that's a part of having those conversations um, and opening up those dialogues um, that, we're, that, we're ha- that we're doing right now. Um, we think that the Uluru Statement sets out the pathway to our future in the sequenced reforms that it puts forward, um, having a voice first, followed by a Macarada Commission to oversee treaty or agreement-making processes and truth-telling processes, and the delegates to the dialogues in 2016 and 2017 talked about why that was so important.
1: Yeah, and I mean, th- there's been um, quite a lot of commentary following the, the death of-, of Queen Elizabeth II about, uh, you know, the-, the idea of renewing a push for a republic for Australia to become a republic. And of course, mm. the first time we had a referendum was back in 1999 on that issue, which which didn't get up. But I'm wondering whether that at all factors into the kind of work you're doing, obviously specifically on the Uluru Statement and an Indigenous Voice to Parliament. But is there anything, I suppose, in our current circumstances that might provide opportunities for galvanising people and and around, I suppose, an alternative or or more inclusive idea of of what it means to be Australian and what getting behind um, positive change can mean for for the country as a Mm. whole?
3: Yeah, I think I think that's what the Uluru Statement Encaptures is for Australians to really reflect on who we are as a nation, that we haven't dealt with our unfinished business um, of the past in order to move forward to, to a better future. Um, as a young person, I don't think our current constitution truly reflects who we are as a nation currently or who we see ourselves um, on a national platform as a nation. You know, we are a very proud multicultural nation. And we should also be really proud of our First Nations history, um, our shared history, which extends over 60,000 years. And the Constitution doesn't currently reflect that. So I think there's an opportunity for change there. Um, At the moment, uh, following the Queen's death, I mean, we will just continue doing that work. And we're looking at going to referendum next year, hopefully. definitely in this term of government so um, as the Uluru dialogue we'll just keep pushing ahead with the education campaign and looking looking, um, towards a a referendum on the voice Um, and of course we want to be able to have a nation where everybody can thrive no matter who they are Um, and I guess the Uluru statement does allow Australians to reimagine an Australia where everyone has a fair go, everyone is equal and everyone has the same opportunity.
1: Yeah, and in terms of this ad itself, where will it be shown and and how can people access it?
3: Yeah, so I think at the moment it will mostly be on playback. So, uh, you know, if you're scrolling on YouTube or... Facebook or any of the socials um, or streaming services, it will pop up as an ad on those. Or you can also access the ad on our social media accounts. Um, the handle is at um and check it out. And I would really encourage everybody to do that. It's really powerful.
1: Yeah, it's a, it is. Um, it is a beautifully produced ad, absolutely. It's been great having you on the show this morning, Bridget. Thanks so much and all the best for the months ahead.
3: Thank you so much.
1: Bridget Karma, there, co-chair of the Uluru Youth Dialogue, talking about a new uh, education campaign they're rolling out, and a new ad as part of a broader campaign called "History is Calling," designed to build support for an Indigenous voice to Parliament.
0: Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app.
1: Stalking affects around one in six women and one in fifteen men in Australia. The experience of being stalked is, of course, highly distressing, impacting people's mental and physical health but despite how common the experience of stalking appears to be it's often not very well understood and assistance can be hard to come by. The Victorian Law Reform Commission has been reviewing the state's legal responses to stalking, harassment and similar conduct. Its final report was last week tabled in state parliament. To tell us more I'm joined by the chair of the Victorian Law Reform Commission the honourable Tony North KC. Tony welcome to Triple R. thanks for coming on.
4: Thanks, Dylan. Good to be here and thanks for your interest in this subject.
1: Absolute pleasure. I mean, it, it seems uh, reasonable to start with, with definitions. What actually is stalking?
4: Yeah, well, um, it is a good place to start because um, one of the things we found was that uh, it's not well understood. Um, and the result of that is that people don't report it and the police don't charge it. Now, why it's not well understood is because it's defined, it's a crime, so it's a, a crime in the Crimes Act, and it's also the basis for getting a personal safety intervention order. And in both cases, what you've got to show is that there's a course of conduct, course of conduct, which is intended to or likely to harm or frighten a person. and And that's what's not understood, because, you know, we're used to crimes where there's a single incident, you know, an assault, um, a clear case. There's just one act. But a course of conduct means that you can have a number of lawful things, lawful acts, which become illegal because they're done in a series. And then, you know, a good example is, um, you know, maybe sending a text message. Well, sending one text message is not a crime, But if you keep doing it and you send 200 in a day and another 200 the next day, and and so you end up sort of harassing a person with the quantity, it becomes um, a criminal offence for which there's a maximum penalty of 10 years. So it's a very serious crime. And until the word gets out that it is a serious criminal offence, people will sort of continue to accept, oh, well... You know, I didn't think that was really illegal, so I didn't go and tell the police. And even the police don't understand it very well.
1: Yeah, well, given it it does involve a course of conduct, I mean, has there traditionally been a a very clear line at which something can be considered stalking?
4: Um, Well, you know, that's been um, one of the confusions because, uh, you know... Uh, the law is great at uh, finding amazing cases right on the borderline. And uh, so the judges have have decided in a number of cases what is and what isn't stalking, but it often involves a really difficult line-drawing exercise. So, you know, imagine the case of young kids going up, banging on the door of a house and scaring an old lady um, They go back in 10 minutes' time and do the same. Um, Is that a course of conduct? Because the time gap is not very much. So the judges have sort of refined and defined what's the difference between a course of conduct and what's just independent, single acts. And one of the things we said to get over this confusion in the mind of the public and the police is that the the definition of the crime should be clarified. So all the learning that the judges have brought to the understanding of what a course of conduct is should actually be written into the statute. And so people will know exactly well this is and this isn't a course of conduct.
1: Mm. And as part of this review, there were more than 250 members of the public who filled out an online form reporting their experiences of stalking. Were there any particular... Patterns or, or common experiences that emerged from that.
4: Look, I think that there was a, a, a large variety because stalking does come in all sorts of different forms. Um, the most common, I suppose, these days that we're familiar with is cyber stalking. Yeah. Um, so this is um, this is sort of the growth area, and so we focused a whole chapter in our report on how the law can better deal with. Um, Issues of cyber stalking. Um, and, um, you know, at the moment, what we heard from people was that there's really no help for someone who's being, for instance, surveilled by a tracking device on their car or who's receiving, you know, multiple messages on their phone. Um, there needs to be, we said in our report, and we made a recommendation that there needs to be a place where people can go and get help. So immediate, practical help. Not not at the moment where, unfortunately, the police um, capacity to help people, for instance, with electronic devices is terribly delayed because they've got so much demand. Mm. So we say, well, look, if you're having a problem with someone um, harassing you on, on your phone, you should be able to go somewhere and either have the phone so... Um, disabled that that can't happen, or get a new phone. And that should be able to happen quickly, it's practical, and it might well sort of nip in the bud the problem. But there, there, there are, of course, more serious cases where, say, that you need um, certain sort of uh, um, anti-surveillance sweeping of your house or your car. And, again, that should be available to people straight away. So... That's a, a, a central point of our recommendation, sort of practical, timely advice to counter cyber stalking.
1: Yeah, and the report notes that for too long, approaches to, to stalking have focused on what victims should do to change their behaviour. And, and, of course, the practice um, is sort of imbalanced gender-wise. It, it tends to, to largely be, you know, women who are stalked by men um, so, so has yeah. there been a sense that, that cyber stalking perhaps hasn't really been taken so seriously because it's deemed that, oh, well, you know, if you're getting messages on your phone, you can just turn your phone off or delete the app or whatever and just sort of get on with your day? Is there that sense that, that the cyber stalking especially hasn't been considered for, for the gravity that, you know, harm it can cause both both psychologically and potentially physically as well?
4: Yes, Dylan, that's exactly what what we found talking to people, that um, um, quite often they'd go to the police and the police would say, you know, just, uh, you know, delete the messages, switch off your phone, um, sort of you take the initiative and you're quite right. Um, The the focus was all on the victim having to sort of self-protect rather than having the facilities to, you know, for society to protect people. Because, you know, as you remarked earlier, um, we heard this a lot, the impact of stalking is horrific. I mean, you know, in the worst case... Well, in the worst cases, you get what's alleged in the Celeste Mano case, where it escalates into, you know, homicide or serious physical violence. But equally bad for a lot of people is where their whole life is disrupted. I mean, people have been known to have... Uh, have to shift into state to get away from the constant, you know, presence of a stalker. Um, so you know the the consequences are really dramatic in the serious cases. And in fact, this this explains one of our other key recommendations. Um, at the moment, a lot of stalking gets into court through the public uh, the um, Um, personal safety um, intervention order system, PSIOs. And at the moment, there are thousands of those that go through the court. And they're they're cases which they involve... Sorry, the many thousands of cases range from the very serious to the almost trivial, you know, the dog poo on my footpath type neighbour complaint. Um, And what we saw is that Because there's such a mass of these cases going through the court, the really serious ones are not picked out and they're not given separate attention directed to their seriousness. So one of the things we recommended was that the the courts and court staff should be given a, 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 a guidance as to how to select, out of that mass, thousands of PSIOs, those that need special attention And then the court should do, as they do in family violence now, there's a well-established system to deal with specialised areas in a specialised way. So we think that that would um, help um, isolate those cases that need special attention and then potentially um, prevent the sort of horrible consequences that have happened in, in many of those cases.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Speaking with Chair of the Victorian Law Reform Commission, the Honourable Tony North, all about a report that the Commission has um, recently completed and tabled in State Parliament into the state's stalking laws. And as part of the, the review and, and recommendations as well, it calls for treatment and support programs for people doing the stalking. What might this involve and, and how might that counteract um, some of the you know, really serious harm that stalking can have on victims?
4: Well, Dylan, it's uh, it's a question of early intervention and uh, uh, an attempt to try and get those cases. And um, I ought to say that it, you know, it it was part of our report, but our, our main focus was on victims. Mm. Um, um, the, there's a lot more work to be done on perpetrators, but I have to say that what we what we heard often was that. Um, they're very difficult cases to address. I mean, perpetrators are often very disturbed people, you know, in the bad cases. Yes. And one of the one of the things that the police are told to tell victims is do not engage with a stalker because very often there's a temptation to say, oh, look, if we could just sit down and talk and, you know, we could explain, you know, what, damage you're doing, um, then the stalker would go away. And it it seems from the research that we had access to that this is not the case. We're dealing with a group of people who are, you know, quite determined often and a little sort of off the planet. Um, This is not to say that they shouldn't be explored um, early intervention schemes. I don't think that there really is a, a significant um, sort of body of those available at the moment. But um, there are there are some, but you know they're they're highly sought after. I think that they require payments, so they're expensive. It, you know, it's a very embryonic sort of state of affairs. But that's not to say that early intervention isn't something very well worthwhile exploring because cause every case that you can head off at the pass, um, you're going to save a lot of uh, trauma, court time and, um, you know, uh, danger along the way.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you know, as you say, in, in, in many cases, simply confronting a stalker and telling them to stop isn't, isn't going to have the desired effect. You've outlined a number of... Um, of issues with the way that stalking is generally um, uh, treated and, and responded to in this state in relation to the, the police response being slow, the, the courts being clogged up and so on. If someone sort of is experiencing stalking and mightn't even, you know, have considered that it, it was a serious offence but would, would really like it to stop, what are some of the things that can be done in order to, um, to, to sort of have, have a meaningful response at the moment despite some of those shortcomings in the system?
4: Well, I think we outline in the report, you know, the uh, avenues which um, um, victims can take. And I mean, they if they identify it as stalking, which, as I say, is a, is a problem in itself, um, the police are the people to go to because, you know, stalking is a criminal offence. They are the body, the agency there to handle it. Now, one of the really innovative suggestions that we make in our report, which would help, I think at this very point that you're talking about um, is the idea of an independent advocate. Because at the moment, you know, if you're the subject of stalking, you, you're fearful, you're sort of really at sixes and sevens. And we, we've seen in the UK um, a system work where you've got an independent person who comes along to walk the journey with the victim right from the word go and give that person advice and options because, you know, it's not always that the court system is the best place to go. You know, there are some cases where indeed sitting down might work. I mean, not not many, but our point is that if you have a person who knows the system and can be at the same time empathetic, uh, then the, the victim loses that feeling of being all alone, which at present it is, and also gives options well beyond just going to the police because, you know, some people, the answer might be to have counselling um, and, and you know, get, uh, I don't know, a private lawyer involved or whatever. But, I mean, there are there are numerous pathways that might be open to a victim which at the moment in all the confusion of the moment and the fear and the anger and resentment, go by the board because you're not able to really think straight um, at that at that point. So, you know, we're, we, we've recommended an independent advocate on the basis of the experience in the UK, and indeed it's become more and more a feature of the criminal justice systems that we've looked at. And we... Um, made the same suggestion in relation to um, sex offence victims in our recent sex offences report. So, you know, this might be a thing that quite transforms the geography of criminal justice where you've got um, victims assisted at a very early stage and that feeling of being alone is countered by people who know their way through the system and can give considered advice to take away some of that you know trauma at the early stages
1: yeah it's super important work and and you know really interesting to unpack it with you this morning that there's a lot in in the report but let's hope you know we'll have to wait till the next term of parliament to see legislative change but let's hope it, there's some measures that go towards improving the system um from where it currently stands it's been really great having you on the show tony uh, tony thanks so much
4: Well, thank you, Dylan, as I said before, for your interest, because it is a very important subject, as you noted. I mean, one in six women, one in 15 men have had experience of it, and often the effects are really devastating. So, you know, the more that we can get um, the community to understand the importance, I suppose, the more chance there is that the government will... um, implement the, the recommendations that we made
1: absolutely and i think that the way that we're connected to digital media these days just makes it sort of um you know all the more possible for for a wider proportion of people to experience stalking as well thanks so much for your time
4: okay thanks Dylan. see you
1: The Honourable Tony North, Chair of the Victorian Law Reform Commission, talking about a report they've put out into how Victoria currently handles stalking um, in in, in this state. It's been tabled in state parliament and we'll see what comes of it. But uh, yeah, I think a really important set of issues that Tony outlined just there. And uh, if this interview has raised any issues for you at all, or if you're at risk of family violence, um, support is available 1800 Respect is one avenue you can seek uh, support through. 1800 737 732. That's 1800 737 732. Triple R. New Zealand is currently considering laws to regulate plain language in public sector communications. The bill aims to improve accountability by requiring government organisations to use clear, concise language so that information can be easily and widely understood. So just what is the importance of plain language in a democracy? Andrea Kalude is a senior lecturer in linguistics at University of Waikato in New Zealand. And to tell us more, she joins me on the line. Andrea, welcome.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Absolute pleasure. And, um, I mean, where has the idea for this bill come from? Has it been percolating for a while over there, this issue?
0: Yeah, I guess it must have been because it's made it pretty far. Um, So, yeah, I think, um, you know, our bill has been modelled quite closely on the Plain Language Act in the US. That was passed in 2010, so... Um, that's where a lot of inspiration came from, I think.
1: Yeah, and so why is it important to have plain kind of accessible language in government communications?
0: It's really important to have accessible language because we want people to understand what they're being told. So sometimes government needs to communicate with um, companies, but sometimes with individuals, and um, it's not just about passing information, but it's also sometimes... um, people need to act on the information they're given. So the importance of communication is that um, it makes not just good social sense in that people know what they're being told and what's being asked of them, but also financial sense in the sense that um, if people are confused about what's required or what they should do. They might do the wrong thing or not do anything, and that can result in kind of unnecessary follow-up communication or other penalties and, you know. So it can be both costly as well as a kind of social inconvenience.
1: Is there a sense that there's kind of developed norms around bureaucratic language at all? Because I'm sure many listeners would have experiences of jumping onto a government website and maybe trying to fill out a form and finding that the way um, that you know, explains that, that what's required can sometimes be a little bit opaque. And I mean, from your position... As a linguist, is there anything distinctive around some of the way that communications can work, can the way that language can work in, in government um, reports and, and documents and the like?
0: Well, you know, it's it's like any use of language. You know, if, you, if you talk to linguists, you know, if you come and hang out with a bunch of us at a linguistics conference, you'll hear people talking in quite opaque language if you're not part of the community. If, yeah. if you do something every day, right, you get used to talking about things in a certain way, you get used to various shorthand forms of um, referring to documents or policies or laws, um, and you use the same recurrent phrases um, and sentences because it's handy. That way, you know, um, when you're talking to people that have heard them before, they can immediately pick out what you're trying to say. Now, the trouble is when you're using the same kind of language that you've developed with your in-group, which it could be, you know, within government, for example, in this case, and you're trying to use that same language, with someone from kind of the out group, someone who's not part of your everyday interactions about those things all the time, then that other person is going to be kind of a bit miffed and left out. So there's nothing uniquely kind of bad or difficult about government language. It's just a general trend with any language that is quite specific.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what is plain language? How should we understand it?
0: there's different ways to think about it, but a common definition that's um, that people use is one proposed by the International Plain Language Working Group, which involves kind of three components. You've got the wording, the structure, and the design of the communication. I need to be clear so that the intended audience can find what it is that they're looking for in the communication. They can understand the communication and then they can use that information. One thing that's kind of quirky and a bit baffling about this, is that people use the term plain language as though there is one language out there. And really, we should be very clear that um, what's happened in the New Zealand bill is that the, the provision that's been made is for plain English. Mm, yeah. It doesn't actually say anything about any of the other languages used. So it's quite, you know, linguistically speaking, you know, it's, it's an interesting choice of word wording,
1: Absolutely. Because English mean,
0: is not every language. English is English and then other languages work in different
1: ways. <laughs> of course. And, and it's super important to have government documents in a, in a range of different languages as well for those reasons of, of accessibility and the like. And, yeah. I mean, over absolutely. there, uh, Maori is widely used in, in Aotearoa as well. It's an official language. Ha, is the bill dealing at all with yep. the use of, of Maori words um, in the legislation?
0: No, so the bill makes no provision for any other languages, uh, including Maori. And what's really interesting about New Zealand's um, kind of the New Zealand Constitution, if you want, is that um, we have got two official languages. So we've got Maori and we've got New Zealand Sign Language. Mm. So English is not actually an official language. English um, turns out to be what what kind of linguists call de facto national language, and that it is used a lot, but it's not actually specified in law because it has already such high dominance.
1: Wow, that's super interesting. Um, mm. Has the experience of the pandemic really highlighted the need for clear language, do you think? Because obviously when there's quite clear guidelines around social distancing and health and safety protocols that we've you know had to abide by to keep others safe, is, is there any sense that that has really highlighted the need to improve the the, the nature of how government um, communications are done?
0: Yeah, I should imagine so, you know. I mean, the the Ministry of Health has communicated um, at times on a daily basis with people. And so we do want people to understand not just what is being asked of them, and the rules, which, by the way, keep changing all the time, right? And change is always a bit unsettling. So if you couch change and difficult to understand language, then that's really problematic. But also, um, you want people to understand why they're being asked to do certain things, so that, that the buy-in to you know the guidelines kind of increases. So there's there's a lot of kind of good reasons why the communication around um, the pandemic needed to be very clear. And I think I think the, the you know we've we've done okay. Um, it's it's been tricky territory, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> to um, to navigate for everybody, everybody, not just New Zealand, right? I mean, must be very similar in Australia.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, we've learned a whole lot through this process, haven't we? I should remind listeners, we're speaking with mm-hmm. Andrea Kalude, Senior Lecturer in Linguistics over at University of Waikato in New Zealand, talking about a plain language um, laws that are currently being debated in New Zealand Parliament and, you know, potentially might even be passed this week depending... On how things go. Um, so, how might this actually work in practice? Are there going to be people like yourself who have expertise in linguistics, um, you know, suddenly working in government departments, um, making sure that, that language is, um, you know, that, that documents are written in a really clear, accessible manner?
0: Well, this is, this is one of the tricky things about the bill. We don't really know. So, um, a lot of the detail, including a definition of what plain language is, um, is going to come kind of in due course. So in some sense, the MPs are kind of being asked to vote on something that's not fully specified. Um, a lot of the decisions will be made by the Public Service Commissioner, um, who will be um, producing materials, for example, a definition of what plain language is, and then they're going to be helping kind of the agencies to comply with, with these plain language requirements that are coming in. Essentially, you know, because this law, you know, imagine it does get passed, um, because this this bill is actually kind of largely procedural, um, you can't use it kind of for punitive action. You can't go and sort of demand that you know you don't no longer pay your taxes because the government hasn't actually informed you accurately or in a clear manner what you need to do. You know you can't do that. Yeah. So a lot of it will be mostly around kind of agencies monitoring, um, fielding requests or cl- for clarification or you know kind of feedback from the public as well. And there will be one. Um, kind of plain language officer that will probably oversee, you know, this this process for for individual kind of agencies. Um, but all this is just about government communication. That's the other kind of important aspect to the bill. It is just about government communication that is directed, kind of outwards, kind of public facing, if you like. So within government, um, the language kind of is, doesn't come under this bill.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of, of Australian examples of um, you know former. Prime Minister Kevin Rudd um, talked about programmatic specificity in, in a speech or interview once and no, one's, no one had any idea <laughs> what that meant. So, of course, this isn't going to um, uh, require our politicians to speak more clearly, but it is, you know, for those um, relevant public-facing yeah. documents and, and the like. I, I mean, from where you see it, I mean, there's been some, um, you know, proponents of the bill talk about it increasing efficiency because, of course, you know, it's better that more people can easily understand um, relevant documents and forms and websites Sites and then they won't need to, uh, you know, consult someone um, maybe as regularly as they would otherwise. But others are claiming that this will increase uh, kind of bureaucracy and, and add another layer, and it will be inefficient. I know this is sort of a little bit beyond your brief um, as as a linguistics uh, lecturer, but do you do you have a sense of whether this is a good road to go down?
0: Well. Yeah, I can't. I can't really comment on that aspect per se, but but I I should mention something that's important and I think relevant to the debate at least, which is the fact that clear communication um, is kind of a democratic right. But also, what's what's important is that it it kind of brings with it an element of linguistic um, equality or mm. inequality. Addresses some of the linguistic inequalities that um, it's not that. You know, if you if you were to have unclear communication, it's not that all groups in our society will be affected in the same way. Everyone's listening to say, you know, your your former prime minister thinking, I don't know what this person's saying. Um, we know that certain groups in society, and it's often already the marginalised, minoritised um, groups that um, find it hardest to navigate. You know, the jargon and the complex, difficult, opaque language, and and having communication that doesn't kind of come through clearly further increases the kind of inequality. And so that is, that is kind of a bad thing for everybody. I think Mm. people need to realize it's not just about those communities, but all society kind of suffers when that kind of thing happens and when inequality goes up, you know? So, um, so in a sense, I think, you know, nobody disagrees with the idea that we all need, you know, clearer communication everyone kind of is on board with that i think i think i don't know um (laughs) maybe some people will say otherwise but my my impression is that the debate is not about do we need language to be clearer and better um i think everyone's okay with that idea being necessary it's just more about how to go about um bringing that about you know it's the details of how we go about enforcing it or um, making people think about it and for people like myself, you know, linguists, we're really into language and we think any kind of awareness is good. Even even just talking, the fact that you and I are talking on air about this issue will make some people think about it. It might make the person who's about to write a letter to, you know, um, from the government to, to kind of instruct people to do something, um, kind of take pause and think, okay, well, who's this, who's this letter intended for? Are they going to be able to understand what I'm saying? It's not just about dishing out the information but you know who's my audience what do they know you know will i connect with them
1: absolutely yeah i mean my mind goes to um, criticisms that have been made in Australia around the process for applying for refugee visas, for instance, where they can, you know, often be in um, highly kind of specialised language and forms that go on for, you know, for, for pages and pages, and that can lead to some people um, missing the deadline of applying, and um, you know, obviously there can be quite serious implications from that as well. So I think this conversation about um, having language, whatever that means, translation services, and and the right kind of supports um, in place mm-hmm. to make Sure, that people who need to um, understand something clearly can do that. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday.
0: Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.